behind. Here we go. 56 yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to oh run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's going to win the football game. He ran the ball. So during the long, miserable, never-ending fourth quarter last night, I got to thinking about Alabama fans and what they had been through <laughs> on Saturday, and I wondered to myself, I think I said out loud, oh, that's way worse. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd rather not be in a game. Then you never, The game, for you, you mentally were done with that game by what? Some halftime? Maybe, maybe when, not quite halftime. No, when but... Wilson threw the touchdown at the end of the half. I said when it's 27-7 going, I said, we lost this game. Okay, it's right. So yeah. then you were never really emotionally involved with it other than the beginning. It's and not honestly, like... I sort of knew it was done at 10 nothing. I wasn't ready to give up on them. Right. But part of my like competitive will for my team to win had died already. I wasn't going to say that or admit that. But, yeah. And if you look at the New England loss that the Saints had this year, by comparison. That's more of a gut punch. I didn't want to watch football for – two weeks <laughs> you know in this case i'm excited for the carolina game already it's like right let's see what this team's made of right let's just get makes, it back out makes that game more important you know that game was a bust and honestly it doesn't make it any more or less important that game we kind of talked about this last week about how even if the saints win last night they're still only up one game okay, on right. carolina and right, if they so lose carolina, to them right. they're in second place right you know so all that game did last night was say the Saints are not going to be the one seed in the NFC and potentially put in some doubt if they get a chance at that again, whether or not they can win in Seattle slash can they win outside. Because that's another thing that's going to be a big against Breeze, thing yeah. now. Is Now, I don't think it should be against Breeze because he played and won plenty of games at Purdue. Okay. I think it's more the Breeze-Payton just away from home offense, type. Saints. Right. I don't think it's a Breeze thing. I'm okay. not worried about Breeze. He played in the Big Ten. Right. He knows. You know, he's played in the cold. I think people forget that because he played at San Diego and then in a dome in New Orleans. And the Saints have never won a road playoff game. Period. Well, they didn't even win a playoff game until the year 2000. So, okay. you know, whatever. They could have easily won that San Francisco playoff game a couple of years ago. It's not like I'm like, oh, they could just never win on the road. The yeah, the, the Alabama game is a way bigger gut punch, and it, it, we'll talk more about how that affects uh, college, college football, football. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. I guess I was made a good call last week on the show saying that's the best rivalry in college football. It was a, <laughs> a well-timed <laughs> moment helps it, to make yeah. that argument, I suppose. Uh, welcome to Season 3, Episode 36 of the Sportscasters, December 3rd, 2013. This is the second-to-last episode of 2013 of season three we'll do this one tonight we'll do one next week and then that will be it for us we'll take basically three weeks off this year just kind of the way it way it played out we won't do one on the 17th we won't do one on the 24th and we won't do one on the 31st so two more this one 
is a really fluid situation as it sometimes is in terms of guests. Uh, there will be two on the show today. I'm not exactly sure which two right now, so I'm not going to try to guess and put ourselves in a position where we would have to re-record something. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of is what it is today. There will be two. They'll be on. We'll see how it goes. We're going to do the greatest of all time today. We're going to do a quick book club update, the last book club update of the year. And then we are going to do one last thing, but we'll get things started with three things. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. So this is the first time since the end of the buys that we will notice there's a lot of games on Sunday again. Obviously, last week was the first full week without buys, but there's three games on Thursday. Right, right. So there was no, it didn't feel as crowded as it sometimes does when everyone's playing. Yeah, don't no, don't no, bother watching Thursday. Yeah, no week. need to rush that unless you're really into the first, the draft, and you want to get a head start on, you know. Who's going to be the first pick? Who's going to have that first pick? Maybe this is one of those weeks. Uh, this is a week where this game has a lot of draft sure, implications. Sure, yep. Houston and Jacksonville. Ugly. There are some good games this week, though. Starting Sunday, uh, you got Colts at Bengals, a game that carries a lot of... Well, you know what? Maybe this doesn't carry a whole lot of weight because both of those teams are probably going to win their division. So, I guess the winner can still say that they're alive for a bye, potentially. The loser is probably playing wildcard weekend no matter what. Right. The Chiefs are probably, well. Cincinnati is the team. The Chiefs don't matter here because they're going to gonna get the wild, get the wild card. card. Right. So what it's New these England two teams are playing for here, and especially Cincinnati with only the four losses, is can we still get to a point? And Cincinnati beat New England. So this is a huge so game for tie. New England. Cause if they, or right. for Cincinnati. Because if they can tie New England, they can still get a bye. Sure. So, yeah, it's a cool game. Uh, beyond that, there's not a lot of good games at one, uh, four o'clock we have, well, I shouldn't say that the AFC is so mediocre. You might have a game like and Detroit, Philadelphia is a really similar game to it's the NFC version of Indy Cincinnati sure, sure. where there's a really good chance. Those could be the two division winners that won't get the bye. So where do those two teams stand? Dolphins Steelers is the other game I was thinking of that. That's a game that. One of those, the team that wins that game might have the inside shot at that that wild card spot. So, pretty good game, I guess. If <laughs> if you want to count the six seed, uh, that's going to be really terrible getting in this year. Although Baltimore would be the team right now that probably has the right. I guess that I guess what that does. It's an elimination it, game, probably in right. Miami. Yeah, and Balt- Baltimore plays the Vikings, so they should win that game too. But, uh, again, there's a great slate of night games, starting with, well, actually the... Four o'clock games are good. Yeah, the Seattle, uh, the Seahawks-49ers game is really good. I'm not sure the 49ers can accomplish too much here. They, I think it's a good spot for the 49ers in terms of getting a win, though. Seattle just had that huge win last night on Monday. It's a short week for them. they got to go on the road. They're right. not as good on the road. San Francisco is going to be hungry. They want this game. they got something to prove. It seems like a bigger game for San Fran than Seattle. Sure. If San Francisco wins this game, it probably cements them as the, what, the four there? Maybe? Well, no, because Carolina, the right. five, right? right. Uh, and the night game looks really good in Panther Saints. We talked about that 
a little bit earlier. This is kind of Saints don't have a lot of time to wake up. You no, know, it's go time here. Same thing. They're at home where they're they're all but unbeatable too, and uh, this is kind of for home field advantage. The winner of this team has a real good inside track at it. Although the two teams do play each other again, what a split is pretty big for the Saints though, because the Saints only have one conference loss. Okay, so if the Saints get a split with the Panthers. So again, a game that's probably more important if, for the Panthers. If these teams only lose to each other the rest of the way, the Saints, Saints would win would the division. It. Okay, and get the bye. Right. Um, and then Monday night, another good game. Cowboys-Bears. Uh, I thought the Bears were better than this, I guess. I'm not sure if their quarterback play is hurting them too much. They've got receivers catching 200 and some odd yard. The Bears are going to throw a party when Adrian Peterson retires. <laughs> he might that might be the team. Even when they were phenomenal, he gashed them. Yeah, they just I don't think it's an overstatement or a man crush thing to say Adrian kind of won that game on his own last week. Yeah, you know what? I actually uh I picked the games heads up and I thought I was doing really well. And I'm like, "Oh, I only missed one game in the morning games and I actually picked Atlanta or Arizona to win over who did they lose to? Philadelphia. The Eagles. Yep. But then I looked back and I'm like, wait a second. Minnesota won that game? <laughs> right. And then I, I think, who else won? Like Jacksonville won a game too. I'm like, what, what won, happened? Yeah. Both of those games seemed like slam dunks and both of those teams won. So, uh, yeah, the Bears, that probably cost them their season. Well, speaking of games that cost a team a season – we played the highlight off the top here, moving on to the second thing. Alabama, who had won the last two national championships, kind of in the midst of a, a dynasty run, got that derailed a bit in the Iron Bowl on Saturday. And we wanted to talk a little bit about the fallout going into the last week of the college football regular season. Yeah, and this is usually where I had this written down actually as a question because this is where, I, you know, we talk about this. I'm not a college guy but I'll bring my dumb college questions to you. The one thing I thought immediately was, does this hurt Florida more than it hurts Alabama? Is it possible that with one loss, Alabama still ends up the two seed? No, Auburn could. Alabama is done unless Florida State and Ohio State lose. Oh, because, because of Alabama the doesn't get to play in the conference championship game. Okay, that's we talked about last week how this is the first time the Iron Bowl was kind of a winner take all game in that sense. Okay, so with Auburn beating Alabama, they play Missouri in the SEC championship game this week. There has been some talk that even without a loss, Auburn could jump Ohio State, who's the number two team right now. Did Florida lose? Florida State. Florida State lose. They're number one. They're number one. Okay. I'm, There's two I'm undefeated right. teams right now. <laughs> number one, Florida State. Number two, Ohio State. If both of those teams win, it sure does seem like that would be the national championship game. There has been some talk that potentially Auburn, with a win over number five, Missouri, could jump they probably should, Ohio State. Right? I mean, I don't think so. I think if you are in a BCS conference and you go undefeated, including a conference championship win over Michigan State who's the number 10 team in the country I don't know how I don't know what Auburn's argument is they lost a game oh wait who hasn't lost then? Ohio State has not lost there's two undefeated teams left oh okay for some reason I had in my head that they both had one loss that was no there's okay that's two I'm... undefeated teams Florida State 12-0 they play Duke in the ACC championship game 
on ABC at 8 o'clock. Ohio State is undefeated. They play number 10. Michigan State on Fox at 8 o'clock. Auburn and Missouri, number 3 and number 5, play on CBS. And then number 7 and 11, Stanford and Arizona State play in the Pac-10 championship game. Although, those teams both have two losses. So, so they're out of it. I guess if everything plays out the way it sounds like it will, is the best college football team going to be at not playing in that game? Uh, no, because you'll probably just assume Florida State is the best, is the especially best. if they continue to look as impressive as they have. If they played a game against Alabama, if they played a national championship game against Alabama, what would the line on that be? Alabama would probably be a four-point favorite, three-point favorite. Yeah, that's so weird about college football. I guess that's the NFL, though, too. I mean, it only you lose one bad game. I mean, this, not to pick on the Saints, but they lost to 7-9 Seattle or whatever, and... Right. I guess your record means nothing at that point. So, the weird thing about the NFL is that was on the road that game for the Saints. You know, they were eleven and five. Well, Seattle, right, right, right. They had to go on the road in that. But I mean, in general, place, but. in college, you have these systems that rely on kind of the eyeball test, and maybe the team that Vegas would pick to be the best is not going to be in the in well, the. Well, all we've heard about for years now is how great the SEC is, and I think they've won six straight national championships. And they're not going to get their champion a chance to play this year, it doesn't look like. Right. And the argument there is, well, they beat up each other. They only lose to each other. Ohio State hasn't played anyone. And that there's that's true. Ohio State ha- has played pretty much no one. I mean, their schedule is brutal. Obviously, the Big Ten is not, it's not the SEC. But, I mean, they played UB, San Diego State, Cal, Florida A&M. That's their non-conference schedule. None of those teams are ranked. Right, and you gave them a game, too. They've only played number 23, Wisconsin, and number 16, Northeastern. Those are the only two ranked teams they've played this year. Hmm. Until they play Michigan State this week in the Nash- in the Big Ten Championship game. So how do you think it plays out? I think it's going to play out with these two teams winning. Florida State, Ohio State? Yeah. I would like to see... I'd like to see them win, too, because I think... I always root for BCS chaos. <laughs> right, right. And I think if one of if Florida State or Ohio State wins, there won't be any chaos. Whoever wins the SEC championship game is going to the national championship. All right, here's a stupid question: what if Florida State lose? and Ohio State lose, it's a rematch. It's Auburn, Alabama. Okay, in Northern Illinois, twelve and zero. Yeah, no. If they both lose, it's Iron Bowl two in the national championship game, and I know that's what everyone wants for sure. Right. So does Florida State have anyone left on their schedule? Well, they have one game, the championship game. They play Duke, oh, number twenty. Okay. This is it. This is the last week. Yep. Yep. So I, I agree. It looks like Florida State and Ohio State are going. And we probably should have prepped you a bit for this segment before. No, it's, <laughs> I, I I pulled up the rankings at least, but I yeah. I know I don't know anything about college football. I forget that the uh, championship. Comes it's into confusing play. too because not everyone plays one. Right. And some like Notre Dame is non... And the Big Ten, you know, two years ago didn't have one. This is only, I think, the second year that there's a Big Ten. There's no Big 12 game anymore. Not that it would matter this year, but there isn't one of those anymore. So this is where people can pick on me for being dumb about this. But Ohio State is playing Michigan State. That's their conference championship. That's the Big right. Ten championship. Yep. Okay. Uh, gotcha. The only way you're not playing a, a championship game this weekend is if your conference doesn't have one. And then what do you play? Just a You're just playing the last game of your season, your conference season. Like OU and Oklahoma State is this week. It okay. would have been last week, except for the Big Ten, the Big 12 doesn't have a conference championship game anymore. 
I because they don't have enough teams. I think you have to have twelve teams. They only have ten now, even though they're the Big Twelve. <laughs> See, <laughs> so damn confusing. Yeah, but but Alabama Auburn that was not a conference championship. Nope, it just happened to be. It was a conference game. Okay, and Alabama has no more games. They do not. Strange, so strange. But don't learn it because it's different next year. Right, good. <laughs> next year there'll be a playoff. four teams. Right. All right, my third thing this week. It looks like the Yankees are going to so- show some restraint, maybe for the first time in the history of, the Yan- of yeah. free agency and the Yankees. Uh, Robinson Cano has kind of held the team up, it seems like, looking to uh, get a $300 million payday. And the Yankees have kind of dug their feet in the ground and said they're not going to do it. $300 million is an exaggeration anyway. It looks like he wants $200 million. Seven year. He wants more than seven years, $200 million. Yankees don't seem interested in paying that. Teams have always accused the Yankees of bidding against themselves. Sure. So the Yankees right. are going to test that philosophy this year. And potentially the Mariners have emerged as the team who may step up and take Cano. And who knows, by the time we get this up, maybe they've done that. But it's interesting this year. Maybe the Yankees will be able to say after this, see, we weren't always bidding against ourselves because someone's always going to come up the back door and pay that money if we don't. Do you think that's what it is, a line in the sand type thing? Or is it just they realize that paying players this much money is not good for them? Well, I think they've finally really gotten burned by one. Like, really, really burned by one. If A-Rod is going to be a lot of dead money. Like, right. an unbelievable amount of dead money every year. And they're not going to take that risk again. It's for different reasons. Not, I'm not saying Cano is a... You know, a performance enhancing risk i'm not saying that oh, right right i'm just saying they view this as a risk they got a risk on the books that they're finally getting really burned on hasn't their issue been pitching more than hitting anyway but they've gotten burned on some big Pitchers, pitching contracts right. you know randy Older johnson guys, yeah. you know uh kevin brown their issue has been i think getting burned on big putting sure. together huge payroll teams that just don't end up being that good there's always been the the that's so this is what 200 million dollars gets you Right, right. That's yep, been exactly. the problem. So it'll be interesting to see if the Mariners come up the back door and pay this deal, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Mariners in the next, you know, seven years. How do they? Maybe the Rangers are the last team like this to take a risk with a Rod, and despite paying him the two hundred and fifty million that they did, and him being an MVP player, they still couldn't put enough around a Rod to be even a playoff team. So it'll be interesting to see how this works out for the Mariners now. If they follow through. Yeah. My last thing is uh, kind of a cool little story. It'll be short. Um, I believe it's the OHL, the Calgary Hitmen. Yep. And it's a tradition across other teams to pick this up, Yeah, my brother scored one of these goals. Did he really? Yeah, in his first year in the USHL. Uh, The teddy bear toss, I believe they always happen around Christmas time, uh, is a tradition where when the first goal, is it the home team goal? Usually Thanksgiving weekend. Is the time? Does it have and to be? It's a home- usually the home team goal, although some places will just do first goal because you don't want to get shut out, and right? Then, right. And I did see one where it's home team goal and it was a shutout, and then when the third period ends, everyone just threw them. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, they didn't take them home, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was probably not as fun. Well, a lot of teams have picked up this event called the Teddy Bear Toss. If you want to search for it, just type in Teddy Bear Toss, and you'll see a video of the most recent, the most recent popular video is the, the Calgary Hitmen. Who had about two thousand in attendance? Nineteen thousand. Nineteen thousand people in attendance. Twenty-four thousand. Twenty-four thousand bears. bears, and it's just crazy to watch because it's kind of like some someone's like 
far away shot, so it's a little bit blurry. It almost looks like it's snowing on the ice or something. There's so many teddy bears. It's awesome. It's really cool. It's a cool tradition. The teddy bears are gathered up and given to charities. Uh, Some of the players take them then personally to hospitals the next day. And I'm not sure how these ones get picked, but some of the bears are also given to dog shelters to be chew toys. So it's a really cool tradition, a nice thing around the holiday season. And look up the videos. They're, I got a they're cool story awesome. about the teddy bear toss, too. All right. So when my brother was a junior in high school, okay. they played Nichols, who's the only other prep school in western New York, really their only other peer at the time. And they decided to do a teddy bear toss at that game. So the deal was, all right, whoever gets the first goal, we'll just throw them out because – it was actually at Nichols. So Nichols scored the first goal, and it was cool because it, was, it, was, it was a lot of bears given the size of the crowd. Right, right. And so it was really cool, and Anthony and I were talking about it after. He's like, yeah, it was really cool. He's like, I was really hoping that we would get that goal. We wanted it to be our team. You know, I was like, ah, you'll play in another one of those games sometime. So fast forward to his first year in the USHL, and he played for Sioux Falls, and they have the game at their – rink and it actually ended up being a night where I was in the hospital so I'm in the hospital watching the game on the laptop and the nurse comes in and she's like oh what are you doing I'm like oh I'm watching this game you know my brother's playing I tell her you know yeah it's a teddy bear I explained to her about the The thing yeah Yeah, and I'm like oh that's him right there three two one he scores down come the teddy bears (laughs) that's awesome yeah it's one of the coolest things ever she was she was like you know, and she, you know, even when you're explaining this, like, you know, people are going to throw teddy bears. Right, right. She probably envisioned, you know, like six teddy bears. Right. And it was, you know, probably everyone there had one. I mean, sure. they were raining down. You know, so it's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's an cool awesome thing. promotion. Uh, it's cool that they, the way they deliver some of them by hand. And it's a cool thing for Christmas time and kids that are sick or whatever. All right. We'll take a break and be right back. Our next guest is a Central Washington University graduate and an AP sports writer based in Seattle, Washington. He is also a Pearl Jam fan and is making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Tim Booth. How's it going today, Tim? Good. How are you doing? Doing really good. Yeah, we were just talking off the air about how suddenly Seattle has like become the epicenter of the sports world in the last 24 hours or something here. Between the Seahawks and the Mariners rumors and everything else that's going on, I'm sure. Can you remember, when's the last time maybe Seattle was buzzing this much and it was because of sports? Was it, was it, did it get this big last year on the Seahawks run? Um, not, not, I guess not to this, not to this point. I mean, there's a, there's a, pretty, uh, there's a pretty special kind of uh, excitement that's, that's building around what the Seahawks are doing um, right now. I, I mean, I can't. I can't remember a stretch that's that's been quite as crazy. The last basically seven eight days um, between some Seahawks news and and some Mariners news and the Apple Cup last week and then Sarkeesian leaving for USC and then the Monday right. night game. It's just been it's been one thing after another for the last uh, the last seven eight days, and so I'm I'm kind of ready for it to calm down just a little bit. Now here's something I was thinking about last night, watching 
my team, people who listen to the show know I'm a huge Saints fan, watching them just get destroyed last night. I was thinking about – I'm from Buffalo, and I was thinking about the Bills and kind of when they got Kelly in there and started their their run at, at four Super Bowls in a row. And I was thinking about the first time that maybe they played a game like that against a really good team. And I was thinking about the AFC Championship game in 1990 and the way they blew out the Raiders – and wondering if maybe they peaked a little quick. If if I want, I was thinking about it, like if the if the Bills had beat the Raiders twenty seven twenty four that game, if they would have played better in the Super Bowl. And luckily, the Seahawks don't have to worry about the Super Bowl next week, so it might not be as big of a deal. But do you think there will be any concern that maybe the Seahawks peaked last night? That that's the best game they're going to play all year. That maybe they haven't quite had the game that they need to lose yet to really truly win. Like the Bills needed to lose in the 88 AFC Championship game to win it in 90. Did the Seahawks already have that game in the playoffs last year, or is there maybe some worry that maybe that game's still on the horizon for them? I think I think if you ask asking or talking to the guys in, in the in the locker room, I think they would I think they would point to that Atlanta playoff game last year as kind of the 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 that that loss that they needed, so to speak, um, and I think maybe in a way they had that earlier this year with what happened in Indianapolis when they got up um, when they got up twelve nothing early and likely should have put that game away and then let Indianapolis back into it and and saw the Colts rally for the win. Um, I you know one thing that that the Seahawks have been really good uh, since Pete Carroll got here and especially the last three seasons is. They've been a really good team the last, the latter half of the year. Last year, they obviously won their last five games. They won seven of eight to close last year. Um, the year before that, they they won five of their final eight, and two of those losses were by a combined five of the or by a combined five points. So, um, they they've been the kind of team that kind of that builds um, throughout the season and then seems to finish really strong. And that's ultimately what Pete Carroll has wanted to develop as a team, but. That is playing its best the final um, the final month of the season, of the regular season and heading into the playoffs. So I, I I get what you're saying. Does this team need kind of a, a reality check, so to speak, before you get to um, before you get to January and what they're going to face in the postseason? Um, you know, maybe that comes this week against against San Francisco, and I don't necessarily think it would be uh, a bad thing. But um, the, the attitude these guys have and kind of the trajectory that they have been on this season and in, and in seasons past is they, they kind of have this crescendo that builds towards the end of the season. And, and you know, if, if last night is an indication of how they're going to play the final month of the season, they're, they're, they're going to be the team that no one wants to see um, come January. Yeah, in the year that the Saints won the Super Bowl, they had an almost identical game and almost an identical time, and it was even on Monday night. It was against New England. I guess it didn't have quite the playoff implications, but it was, you know, a really – you know, another team with a great record coming in on a Monday night and everyone watching and the Saints killed them. And the Saints still had kind of a, a tough stretch in there closing out that season. But I think, you know, that win is is more positive than negative, obviously. I was joking around with some Seahawks fans on Twitter last night, kind of like they were throwing some jabs. And I just kind of just didn't have much, obviously, in my tank last night. But <laughs> I said something like, well, you know, the only thing that can beat this team at this point is a couple more failed drugs tests. Drug tests, and I was joking, obviously, but what about that at this point? I mean, how many players on this team are going to say it was Adderall or whatever? Like, is that going to 
be bigger than it is? I don't feel like there's much being paid attention to that because they're playing so well. Could that? Well, I, I, I think, I think what you're, what you're going to find is, is it's, you know, what's happened this year is, is kind of separate from what happened last year. Both of the, the, the Walter Thurman suspension and the, the pending possible suspension for, for Brandon Brenner are both substance abuse violations and they're not, um, they're not, PED violation. So you're not going to have, you know, unless someone else comes out of the blue that, that hasn't been rumored about yet, you're not going to have someone getting popped for a, for a performance enhancing drug situation like what happened, um, what happened last year and, and what's kind of been the, the stigma of this team in, in the past with, with their, with their positive drug test. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the fact that they had the substance abuse violations is concerning because when you get to the point of actually being suspended, for a substance abuse violation, it means you've had at least one positive test in the past, and then you've failed the test again. So, right, um, and Browder, you know, this is three for him, right? Because he got a- supposedly there's some there's some there's some incongruent errors. There's some, some information that I think still is going to come out about Browner about whether or not um, it's the fact that he had a third failed test or if he's missed tests in the past. There's, there's kind of a gray area right there, and I believe that's what the basis of his of his uh, appeals about is, is the fact that he, I, I think he's claiming that he, he was, he missed tests, uh, but he was playing in the CFL at the time. So it wasn't even, a, you know, in the league trying to, at that point. So there, there, there's, there's some, there's some information I think that still come out about, about Browner, but obviously there's been a failed test at some point along the way. And, and whether it's a year suspension or a four game suspension, he's going to, he's going to miss some time. So, um, yeah, so this, it's a little separate from, from last year, but, uh, I, I think when you, when you play as well as a team, then that stuff gets, gets overlooked no matter what the suspension is. Um, and, you know, when you come out and have a performance like last night, when your backups play as well as they did, then, um, that other stuff kind of gets, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily ignored, but it's just, it's not paid attention, attention to as much because, uh, the guys who are gone aren't being spotlighted because they're guys, the guys that filled in played so well. One last thing about the Seahawks, and I want to ask you a couple other things. Probably the one thing that stood out maybe a little bit more than I would have thought and even my worst Saints nightmare was how good Russell Wilson played. I think there's been this kind of a, all right, it's been good, but he's going to hit this tough patch, maybe what, Kaepernick has hit a little bit this year at times or you know it's going to come it's not always going to be this easy for him but it just seems like whatever that is it's probably time to stop waiting for it it just feels like this guy has really put himself into the upper echelon of quarterbacks in this league and I think he served notice to everyone last night yeah I would I would agree with that I think last night was kind of the the um the, the notice like you said or the or the the announcement that hey, I'm I'm getting better. I'm I'm continuing to evolve as a quarterback. I thought it was I thought it was really interesting last night. Some of the stuff they did with uh, spreading out the Saints defense, a lot of four receiver or four wide formations. Sometimes there's a tight end, sometimes there's a, a running back that fourth receiver out wide. But they really tried to spread them, and then brought back his own read, which really has not been part of their offense very much this season. It's only been on occasion that they would throw that in. And last night they ran it four or five times in the first half alone. Um, and that's just another wrinkle that I think because they had their bye week and time to tinker a little bit, that was something they could bring back in. And, and it's twofold too, because 
you show it against New Orleans, and then on a short week, all of a sudden, San Francisco, who they play on Sunday, has to start preparing for it, too. Um, and and the, the other thing that I thought was really impressive last night was, um, and a couple of guys talked about this after the game, was they had seen on film certain sort of blitz packages and certain, certain looks that the Saints defense would show, and they knew when, they, when the Saints showed that, that they were bringing pressure. And twice, Wilson saw it before the snap, sent a little hand signal to his receivers. They changed their route that they were running, and the Seahawks got big plays out of it both times. One was the, one was the throw to Zach Miller that went for 50 yards. One and was the one the on Jenkins. Yeah, and then the one the one to Doug Baldwin for 52 yards. Right, so, and that one I um, thought was really, really a bad job by the Saints because I thought it was obvious for a, a good four seconds that Wilson knew exactly what was coming there. Like, I just... I couldn't believe that Lofton didn't check out of that one, actually. But yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so it's it just it's it just another level of of his understanding, kind of where he is with his film study, and and seeing these little things and being able to recognize them on the field in a, in a in a quick fashion, making the right checks, making the right calls, and then dropping dimes into his receivers like he did. Everyone keeps saying, you know, who's going to beat that team in Seattle? And it sure looks like they're going to, someone's going to have to do it if it's not going to be the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. And I'm not, I don't really want to know if you think there's a team, but what kind of game do you think needs to be played to beat them there? I don't know. <laughs> right. yeah. I honestly don't. I think I think we're kind of at the point where um, it's it's a team who can. It's a team who can take advantage of, of the few mistakes Seattle's going to make. Last night, Russell, in the first half, Marshawn Lynch fumbled, yep. fumbled a pass. Yep. White dropped a um, pick. And, and then there was the interception yep. on the deep ball to Golden Tate that was dropped. Yep. Um, those were the only two opportunities Seattle gave New Orleans' defense a chance to, to take the ball away and make a, make a, make a play. It's going to take a game like that. It's going to take... Um, it's going to take a half like Seattle had against Tampa Bay um, a month ago, where they fell behind twenty-one uh, nothing. And but against a better opponent, you know that that's going to be too much to overcome. I think it, it it's going to take something like that. I you know it at this point, you know maybe maybe San Francisco comes out and and kind of tempers everyone's expectations for what Seattle can be and and kind of dominate them this week down in down in San Francisco, but. Um, you know, at this point, I, I, I honestly don't know what kind of team or what kind of game is gonna is gonna beat Seattle at home. They're they're playing so uh, so well. The, the last their last three games have been really impressive, and I know it hasn't been against the best competition playing Atlanta and Minnesota before last night, but um, but the last three games have been really really impressive. I'd be really interested to see what would happen if the two teams played again. I I just wonder if. Seattle brought so much intensity right away and got off su- to such a great start. I wonder if, obviously, if it happens again, it's probably going to be in the NFC Championship game, so you'd like to think they wouldn't have a problem getting up for that game. But I wonder if they would sleep <laughs> on the Saints a little bit if they played them again, based on how badly they beat them this time. But I, it's, it's, not, it's not the personality of this, of this team, I don't think. Um, I, I, Pete Carroll does a really good job of keeping these guys grounded. Um, and, and I think... I. I I think these guys, uh, for them, especially the leaders of the team, Russell and, and Earl Thomas, and, and to a lesser extent Richard Sherman, uh, I think they realize they got something really special going. And the last thing they need to do is underestimate somebody based on a based on a prior um, a prior game or a prior score. So uh, 
I, I, it, 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 I, I think if they get beat, it's gonna be it's gonna be mistakes that they they make that the other team takes advantage of, not necessarily them underestimating someone, maybe like they did with those games against Tampa Bay and St. Louis when when they were really close and they had to pull them out at the end. And I, I hope this doesn't come off as like sour grapes, but I think the coolest thing maybe about the Seahawks is their villains. I, I think you know what I mean. Like I don't think anyone yeah. that's not a Seahawks fan is going to find much likable about that team. And I, other than <laughs> other than Wilson, who is very very likable, but I, and I don't mean that as like oh my team just got killed by them because I hate them. I, I actually mean as a compliment. Actually, one thing I've disliked about the Breeze Peyton era, coupled with the um, with the uh, rebuilding of New Orleans, is just kind of like New Orleans, the Saints being like this kind of like alternate America's team at times, and maybe Bountygate curb cut some of that. Maybe it didn't. I'm not sure, but I think the Seahawks are the opposite of that. I think there's a lot of people who don't love Pete Carroll. I think that Earl Thomas is really easy to not like, especially if you seen his interview. Any I don't remember if it's ESPN or the NFL Network last night or whatever. Maybe I was just in a bad mood, but but I, I really am saying that as a compliment, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, these these guys thrive on being on on keeping that chip on their shoulder. Um they you know, they they rest, they know when guys pick against them. They know when um when they're being disres- what they feel like is being disrespected by the national media. So you you're right. They they thrive on this idea of kind of being the the villains and the team no one really likes and and outside of Seattle anyway and and uh it's it's an interesting it's an interesting um dynamic because uh, because you would think that from a talent standpoint and kind of what they've done this year, they would be past that. But they they still they still like people picking against them and then going out and showing them up. Yeah, yeah, I think it can and work for a team. Uh, Tim Booth is on the show. You can find him on Twitter at by Tim Booth. He writes for the Associated Press. We're not going to get to much else today because we're just about out of time. But I want to ask you two real quick things, and I'll let you go. First, quick thing. Just getting your sense around there today is is it a real possibility Robinson Cano is going to be a Mariner? I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I, Seattle committed a ton of money last year to Felix Fernandez, um, kind of with the promise that they were going to build a contender. I don't know if throwing, um, if throwing upwards of $200 million at one guy is the best way for Seattle to become a contender, no matter how good Robinson Cano is. I, to me, that's a, to me, that's, that's, that reeks of, of moves that the team has done in the past where they brought in guys on big salaries and watch those guys just underperform um, typically at the plate uh, on, on a regular basis. So I, I, to, to me, I would, I would, it's so, it's so hard to get free agents to want to come to Seattle anyway, because it's cold early in the season. You still have the stigma about the ballpark, um, you know, but I, I still don't know if, if 200 million is the, is to one guy is, is the right move for this team. I always thought too, like if there's a guy that the Yankees don't think is worth 200 million, I'd almost not want to do it, no matter what. You know, it just seems like they will drop 200 million on, you know, Gussie third baseman. You know, just like the fact that they yeah. don't want to do it for some reason is a red flag to me, even though maybe it shouldn't be. But yeah, all right, last thing. So we're not going to get a lot of time to totally geek out and fanboy on Pearl Jam, but I want to know two quick, th- well, three things. One, how do you like Lightning Bolt? Two, how was the show the other day? And three, are you going to the show in a couple of days? Uh, let's see. First, I think Lightning Bolt is really, really good. I think it's probably their best album since Yield. Um, there's only a couple of songs on there I kind of, eh. 
about, but um, which is far better than what Backspacer was. It, it, I think there's two songs I like off of Backspacer. And, really? And I like I like Lightning Bolt a lot more. Um, so the, the first time I listened to it, I, I really liked it, and so that, that's always a good sign, um, considering there's been a couple other albums where I've been a little wishy-washy about. Uh, the show I saw on Saturday night across the state in Spokane only reinforced that I think they're the best live band in the world. Um, they, they went on stage at, at 8.35 and went off stage at 11.45. I mean, it was, it was three hours, three hours plus of just fantastic music. They are, um, I, 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 you know, I've seen a lot of bands, a fair amount of bands live in, in, in arenas. And I just, I'm hard pressed to find a band that sounds so good on a regular basis in an arena setting. And, I've had the I've had the chance now to see Pearl Jam play, you know, twenty thousand feet arenas. Um, the Spokane Arena that I saw them in the other night seats about eleven thousand, so it's kind of a smaller venue. And then uh, last year I was lucky enough to be in Missoula, Montana, when they played a, a five thousand feet college basketball arena, and that was an incredible show. And every time they just sound fantastic. So um, they're it's they're, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm such a Pearl Jam geek. It's, it's bad. It's, <laughs> so it's, are we. They're so good. And then, lastly, yes, I will be uh, I will be in in attendance Friday night for the for the tour finale here in Seattle. I always feel like the Seattle shows. I, I blow it. Like I've been to seventy eight shows, which maybe sounds like a lot, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But it's been spread out since ninety six. I never went to more than twelve in a year. But I remember in two thousand, I was either going to go to Vegas for the ten year show or go to Seattle three. And I went to Vegas, and maybe in retrospect, I should have went to Seattle three. And then this year. I wanted to go to Seattle, but for some reason it was only one show, so I went to Oklahoma City, Dallas instead. I hope I don't regret that. But I did. The only time I've ever been to Seattle for a show was the Ben and Roya show, which I always tell everyone is my favorite of all of them and such a cool place to see them. So at least I have that, you know, as my... Yeah, I would... It, 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 it's weird about the Seattle shows. They've, they've either been... Um, they've either been really good or they've been a little... Um, I, and I'm not talking about the band. I'm talking more about the atmosphere. Where they're a little on the on the disappointing side, I thought both of the they opened in Seattle for the Backspacer tour in 2009. I went to right. both of those shows, and I thought the crowd sucked both nights. I thought it was really lackluster, and even the band said so because they went from Seattle to play Vancouver right after that, and they were making comment in Vancouver about how they thought the Seattle crowds were a little disappointing. I don't know if it's a I don't, I don't know if, if we're just become kind of passive knowing that they're the hometown band and, and they're always going to come here and play. But um, I'm, I'm hoping and expecting a lot more on, uh, on Friday night. I'm going to be really disappointed if it's another crappy crowd. Well, uh, I, I think this is the first time that they've closed the tour there since the binaural tour, right? And that was maybe the yep. last, like, great, great Seattle full arena show was that. Yeah. Yeah. So that – And that was – that was after Ross, the, the incident in Denmark. Right. And, uh, yeah, I went to the first show really, in Virginia Beach after that, just because I felt... I saw him But, yeah. All right, Tim, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate the time.
inspiring. It's great. Yeah. Uh, welcome back to the Sportscasters. We are going to do some greatest of all time. Second last time we'll do this this year. We've been having fun with this one. I'll kick us off today. We talked a little bit earlier about Robinson Cano potentially signing with the Seattle Mariners, leaving the Yankees. We also talked about that contract that A-Rod signed with the Rangers, leaving the Mariners. I'm going to say the greatest Major League Baseball free agent signing of all time was Barry Bonds. And I think that that's true by a long shot. Number two might even be Greg Maddox, which is interesting because that was the same year. But Barry Bonds basically gave the San Francisco Giants everything you would want for that money tenfold. And PEDs don't even matter in this case. Because one, the people in San Francisco never cared about it. <laughs> Not one iota. And it was that era, <clears throat> era when that's and everyone two, was doing it. And two, Bonds packed that ballpark year after year, day after day with single season home run chases, career home run chases. He put that ballpark on the television every sports center with he put that waterway behind yeah, him. Yeah, I was just going to say, with <laughs> yeah. home run balls into the San Francisco Bay, yeah. he was everything you could ever want in a free agent baseball signing. And I think by a long shot, Barry Bonds is the greatest Major League Baseball free agent signing of all time. All right, my first one. It might get some arguments here. The greatest keyboard shortcut of all time. I'm going to go with Control-Z. Narrowly beating out the combination of Control C, Control V. Right, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And uh, Control, control Shift S? N. What about Control S for save? Well, I don't know. No, this thing's auto save now. <laughs> they do. That's true. But Control Shift N is another big one out there that uh, opens incognito mode or private mode. So if you're going to do some uh, surfing that you don't want people to know about NSFW stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Control Shift T is another. Good one, too, but Control-Z is the best of all. I'm asking for a friend, but what does Control-Z do again? Control-Z is undo. Undo, okay. But even if you shift-delete a file in Windows and Control-Z it real quick, it'll come back. So it, it's the ultimate reset button. Okay. I, I think I'm still going to have to lean towards uh, CV. Control-C, Control-V? Yeah. They're very useful. Yeah, very useful. Definitely I use them the most. That might be true. I might use it the most, but right. Control-Z has been the most More clutch. functional yeah. clutch. Okay. All right. Uh, the greatest – oh, this is another thing we talked about on the show today, the national championship game. You were right up on all of the potential scenarios. You had them all worked <laughs> oh, yeah. out. What oh, yeah. Happened. Uh, the greatest BCS championship game of all time. This is another one that's probably not close. Texas over USC. Vince Young? Vince Young. Oh, I did watch that one. Over too. the Reggie Bush, yeah, yeah. Matt Leiner teams. Tons of pros in the game. Really interesting, polarizing players like Vince Young and Reggie Bush. Uh, Hollywood with LA, Texas, and Austin, and that crazy fan base winning their first national championship in a long time. And it was a great game, right down to the wire. Really strange plays like Reggie Bush's random lateral for some reason that kind of gave Texas new life, and Vince Young's scramble play. Just a great, great national championship game. And really, when you look at Look back at this BCS era, which is going to be the 1999 championship game with Tennessee winning the first year after Peyton Manning and ending with whatever the game is this year. There isn't a whole lot of really, really great, great, compelling games. Maybe the second best one is the one that was played the day before the start of the sportscasters between Oregon and Auburn. Oh, yeah. But uh, I'm pretty safe and confident that I'm not going to get too many arguments with Texas over USC as the greatest, greatest BCS championship game. 
All right, my second thing, and this, if you know me, is this one's kind of just like anyone out there that doesn't know me or hasn't read my bio on the website. This is uh, this is kind of a given, but just to throw it out there, the greatest. I wrote space show, but that sounds stupid. I think I want to say like science fiction or something there. The greatest science fiction TV show of all time is Firefly. And yeah, you love Firefly. I do love Firefly. And if there was another category, and I didn't know how to research this one, but otherwise I would put that in there too. But if there was a category of the greatest show that ended too soon, it would definitely be Firefly also for me. But I couldn't figure out. How I think to, how Deadwood do I know? would be the one that you would get the most. Deadwood. Deadwood. I and was noticed. it canceled? It was notoriously ended too soon. Canceled by HBO, I believe. Okay, because uh, that's what I wasn't sure about. How to tell if something had just ended or not renewed, or was? I mean, yes, that's the same. Veronica thing. Veronica Mars is maybe another one that's popular. Yeah, popular. so was. Uh, and it's a comedy, but. Uh, Joss Judd Apatow. Oh, Freaks and Geeks. Freaks and Geeks yeah. is another big yeah, one, Yeah, only too. one season. But yeah, greatest science fiction, or as I wrote, space show of all time is Firefly. You could have got the whole series for $5 on DVD on Black Friday. I believe it. It's well Someone worth it. Go out there, it. get it. Uh, you'll be a brown coat after you do. All right, we're going to go head-to-head on one. Okay, I'm ready. All right. I actually feel strongly about this. When you mentioned it, I, there's only one that comes to my mind, so let's do it. Greatest Christmas movie of all time. As far as I know, it's the only one they show 24 hours straight on Christmas Day. Well, it can't be this one. <laughs> the Christmas Story. Oh, okay. Uh, now, I didn't think it was easy. There was like four or five that I considered, and I gave the nod to The Christmas Story for a couple reasons. One, Fragile and The Lamp. Okay. Two, it, it does air 24 hours a right. day. And three, it's good for all ages. Right, that's Most where mine's going to fall flat. Most Christmas movies are, but some that I, one that I considered strongly is certainly not good for all ages. Definitely not. Uh, but you can anyone can watch Christmas Story and enjoy it from age probably three to eighty. So I'm going to go with Christmas Story. Yeah, if you throw that in as one of the stipulations, mine would definitely be out. But my for me, the greatest Christmas movie of all time is Bad Santa. Right, that was the one I thought of that. It is absolutely hysterical. Uh, viewing after viewing, that child actor kid hilarious. is absolutely hilarious. What I still say all the time: How can somebody drop me on my head? Because and it, just his interaction with Billy Bob Thornton is—it's uh, comedy gold. The, the two of them, if people call like acting like that, like a dance. They are so good at it, and he's such a young kid. It's phenomenal. I've probably seen it ten times, and I laugh my my ass off every time. If you haven't seen Bad Santa, don't watch it like with your grandmother in the room or right. your, your kids because it's not that type of movie. But it is funny as hell. You know, it's interesting too because I, I'm I'm still sticking with uh, that I think Christmas Story is the greatest Christmas movie of all time, but it's certainly not the funniest. Right. So I would probably easily say that. But then every other, the other two that I would consider, Elf and National Lampoon, oh, yeah. are funny as well. But Christmas, uh, Bad I, Santa is funnier. Than I would almost two, argue that even though it has Santa in the title, it's barely a Christmas movie. You know what I mean? There's not. I, mean, I shouldn't say barely. Like, Dar- like Die Hard too. Like Die Hard. Right, is it's not a, <laughs> really a Christmas movie, but it's Christmas time during the it. little boy brings Christmas to the movie. But other than that, it's just kind of a front he uses to right, and to he's do, uh, to rob places. And he's a Santa. Spoiler alert! But the movie's right. ten years old or whatever. Right, and he's a Santa. But it, really, there's there's not much caroling and stuff like that in it. 
Phenomenal, though. Check it out. All right. Greatest Major League Baseball free agent signing of all time, Barry Bonds. Greatest BCS championship game of all time, Texas over USC. And the greatest Christmas movie of all time, The Christmas Story. Greatest keyboard shortcut, Control-Z. Greatest space show of all time is Firefly. Watch it. Uh, and the greatest movie, Christmas movie of all time is Bad Santa. All right, I just wanted to do a real quick book club update, one last one, because I love all three of these books, and I really wanted to thank the authors one last time. The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by J- David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Masked Man. You might know him from his work covering wrestling on Grantland or his Dead Wrestler of the Week columns on Deadspin. And I have a copy of this book to give away. So if you're interested, send me an email to sportscasters at gmail.com and I can send it out to you. You can keep it for yourself or maybe a Christmas gift for a wrestling fan on your list. So if you're interested in that, again, you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. The Kennedy Half Century, The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of JFK by Larry J. Sabato. Mr. Sabato was nice enough to be on the podcast last week. If you want to check out an interview with him, you can find it on our website www.sports-casters.com and uh, you can check that out and Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football by Richard Cohen you can also win a copy of this book I have a copy of that to give out as well so if you'd like it you can email me at sportscasters at gmail.com I want to thank Cohen for being on the podcast as well Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football we're going to take a break and be right back What's up, Artie? Hey, what's up, man? I was actually born in Livingston. I grew up in Union, New Jersey. That's just a matter of pride. I had to correct that one thing. Gotcha. New Jersey guy, through and through, big Springsteen fan. You know, I was uh, going through some stuff getting ready for this, and I realized we have a you know, a few things in common. We're both Italian-Americans. Uh, we, were both, right. we were both fans of the Howard Stern Show. Uh, we're both newly engaged men. Uh, we nice. Ha- we both hate A-Rod. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we both cried in a Michael Jackson concert. <laughs> wow, there you go. Yeah, but, that's uh, a tough one. But... No, the last one was just you, but um, uh, <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say I doubt that's true. <laughs> uh, one thing though, I I don't know if I'll ever. Well, I'm pretty sure I won't have in common with you is you know just this thing about you being a New York Times bestselling author, and I was thinking about. The way your life has turned out here, the last bunch of – with how transparent it, it has become between the, the eight years on the Howard Stern show where you are admitting so many things on a daily basis and living such a transparent life. And, and now these two incredibly honest books that you've written are now available for the world to see eternally. And I just wonder, have you ever – have you sat down and thought about like – Wow, I, I I maybe have the most transparent life in America at this point now. <laughs> well, within my world and the world where I'm a celebrity, you know, uh, it's not, I'm not an A-lister, thank God, because I think that'd be even more nightmarish. But in the solid C-list celebrity world I've created, yeah, it's 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 transparent like hell. And uh, I mean, that's one of those things. You know, again, one of my heroes of stand-up was Richard Pryor, and he approached it the same way. Uh, you know, uh, every time um, he screwed up in life, his stand-up back got better. And I, uh, you know, I mean, honesty is the key to comedy. And 
uh, I've always tried to be honest about stuff I've done in life and about people I've met in life and how they act and, and uh, just tell the truth, you know. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It's, uh, it's good for my art, if you want to put it that way. You know, this question isn't meant to be an ego thing, but I wonder if when you write a book like this and you're as honest as you are in it and you put it out, is there a worry in the back of your mind that, oh my God, what if I just poured out my heart and soul and this book's just a failure and no one cares? Were you worried at all that you were setting yourself up for a little bit? I mean, it was, it's the opposite, obviously. It's a huge success. And I wonder, and, and you know, opposite of that question, is there a little bit of... Is there a little bit of extra pride knowing that, hey, people do care about me? Because this book is you. It's not just a book about a fiction that you wrote or something. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, you know, Obviously, the first book was an enormous success. And, uh, you know, when Howard wrote the forward, and I plugged it on Howard every day. So there was that. I mean, that's the biggest type of plug you could get. So with this book, yeah, there was a sense of, wow, you know, I'm putting myself out there now. I don't have the Stone Show every day to plug it. And, uh, when it hit the bestsellers list this time, there was a real sense of pride and, and also uh, a sentimental feeling that people do, um, you know, actually uh, care about me to the point where they'll buy the book and, and read about my life. I, have, you know, it's kind of a rare thing. I have, I have two bestsellers in the last five years, and both are books about my life, which means people are interested in my life. It, it, it's a nice feeling, you know. Uh, so uh, hey, what the hell? Hopefully it's helping people too, you know. You have uh, you've been on a lot of shows the last couple of weeks promoting the book, and I think you being here is proof you've been just about everywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one thing I've noticed, and I've I've watched quite a bit of it, is that whenever anyone talks about your time on the Stern Show, one thing that frustrates me, someone who was was a listener almost all those days that you were on the Stern Show, one thing that frustrates me is everyone wants to kind of boil it down to either how it ended. Or how you fought with Teddy or maybe someone else on the show. It seems like right. no, it seems like no one wants to talk about anything else. And there are so many uh-huh. moments, so many days on that show where you just totally entertained me and many other people. And I think one of my favorite moments, just to, to bring something else up for once, is uh, when you had the chance. I think it was pretty early in the run when you had the chance to kind of sing the second verse of "You Shook Me All Night Long" with ACDC. And, yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, just a legendary Stern Show moment. I mean, everyone in the studio was going crazy. I remember at one point Howard like tried to to quiet you, and uh, and Brian Johnson was like, "No, no, no, son, come back, come back," you know. And I, I was just thinking about that, and I was just, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, maybe to mention some of the really great moments you had on the show. Does anything stick out as like a, a favorite moment, as opposed to so many of the negative ones people are focusing on? I I appreciate that, man. I mean, no, yeah. I mean, listen, that is true. I mean, for the first six years before the last year and a half when heroin took over, I, you know, I was a co-host on the show, and the reason I was on the show was because I could be funny, you know, and I'm proud of that. And Howard wouldn't let somebody who wasn't funny on that show, and that and that criteria is huge. Uh, you know, there's moments like the ACDC thing, of course. I I think back to, I love doing some of the impressions that were strictly Stern Show World impressions, like. You know, I would do Mike Tyson every once in a while or whatever, but but that that's an impression that's for the world. I like doing like Ed Torian, the 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 guy who used to give the um the exams uh, to see if people were telling the truth. I used to like to do Jeff the Drunk. I used to like to do uh you know Crazy Alice. Um, I used to like to bust chops with Eric the Midget. You know. I, uh, 
him in that doing that voice was when he would give the lie detector test. And, uh, you know, Howard, you know, always said he loved that impression almost the most. And yeah, that was a real stern show thing where fans had to know it. And, uh, you know, just being able to be like, you know, did you ever, did you ever uh, make love to Howard? Did you ever, uh, you know, uh, call uh, Amoroso? She did. I understand you being upset. You know, uh, and to have, like, you know, people laughing at Howard, almost crying laughing is... You know, those are my favorite moments was to do those characters, you know. Yeah, and like I said, I, I felt so bad the last couple of weeks feeling like, like those moments are kind of gone. You know, one other kind of silly thing about the Stern show is you took over for Jackie. And I remember a big joke on the show was Jackie kind of talking about how once he, he left just a few days too early because if he would have been on longer, he could have been best friends with Paul McCartney. They would have told each other jokes. And I just wonder, uh, <laughs> I just wondered, is there already equivalent to that? Do you ever sit back and say, man, if I just would have been on a few days longer, I could have been best friends with Lady Gaga or someone who's been on recently? Uh, I don't think I would have been best friends with Lady Gaga. No, not, probably not. I guess I love Jackie, but I think I'm way more realistic with him. <laughs> I mean, odds are that wasn't my job on the show was to make friends with those people. I think odds are if I was in there with Lady Gaga, she'd hate me even more than she might now if she knew who I was, so. Uh, but I would have loved the opportunity to make her hate me more, put it that way. <laughs> uh, last few minutes here with Artie Lang, really a huge honor for us to have him on the show. And, you know, you transitioned from being a co-host on the Stern Show to now you're in your third year at DirecTV being the host. And I remember one thing I hated was how people used to sometimes get really upset when you would be in the forefront of the interviews. They'd want you to just sit in the background, let Howard interview. Now doing your own show three years, maybe a little bit longer, you you drive the interviews, you're, you're the head force. Was there adjustment in that as a, as a broadcaster, as a host? And uh, have you gotten to a point where you feel really comfortable with the interviews? Is it something you feel like you excel on now? Well, you know, it's a good point. You know, the funny thing is, with me on the Stern Show, excelling and then being in the forefront of the interviews, I uh, I would only do it if Howard wanted me to, or at the last year and a half when I uh, dope took over, and I would do it because I just became crazy, and Howard lost control of me, and then being completely my fault, I feel terrible about that. But now, you know, obviously I work three feet from the best guy I've ever done it for almost ten years, and I, you know, you learn a lot about interviewing, and I try to just use those instincts. I mean, like a lot of people on radio, I'm just doing a bad impression of Howard with an interview. You know, I, I. Uh, but I love that they're sports-related, and I'm a fan, and a lot of the interviews are about people in the sports world. So I just try to, you know, uh, just go by my instincts. And so far, so good. I, I I, I enjoy it way more than I thought I would, put it that way. You know? Has there been someone on the show that you've been able to interview in the sports world that's been a huge moment for you personally? Uh, uh, well, yeah, sure. Uh, we've had, uh, we've had a lot of people on that, um, that I've, I've respected. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, one time, uh, that we, the last couple of weeks we uh, interviewed David Wells and David Wells is a guy who, uh, I always loved on the show. He was like a modern day version of Thurman Munson when he was on the Yankees and the way I loved and you know, that blue collar guy and God, he's great. He's so honest on the air. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of his, and he's one of the few Yankees who's ever pitched a perfect game, you know. So I'm like, uh, you know, for my era, my generation, to get to talk to David Wells and to have him be so honest the way he is, he said, he, uh, you know, doing the interview, I asked the crazy questions, and I, one, one time he brought it out, I love I love this show. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. I, you know, because I 
different. He's laid back. He's got the great life that he deserves now, enjoying his money and uh, his fame. But um, he picks and chooses where he goes. So the fact that he comes on my show once in a while, I think, is great. I love David Wells. Last thing, Artie, and you know, I, I don't know what, why things happen or whatever, and I don't want to try to to theorize it here. But uh, you know, we have we've been doing this show since 2011, and around uh, January last year, we had to take a, a few month break because I was. Um, I have Crohn's disease, and I was out for a few months with that and had to have a surgery and had a battle back. And I think with anything in health, whether it's uh, Crohn's disease or drug addiction or whatever it is you're going through, you need to to, to find something kind of in you that, that gives you the, the energy to be willing to fight through it. And I'm not sure what it was for you, but I know it, it, for me it's been things like seeing other people do it and what you have done this last year and the way – You've overcome what you have and the way that you're willing to, to put it out there and into the pages. And, I, and a similar thing is Mike McCready of Pearl Jam. I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy. He's a guy with Crohn's disease, and he's been willing to, to put it out there and to talk about his struggles. And, and I know for me, wow. that's, been, that's been huge. And I think what you're doing is going to be huge for people uh, who are suffering from what you did. And I just want to really thank you so much for this. I know you're doing a lot of things, and I'm not sure. I, I know I watched one thing the host seemed like you didn't know who you were till a few hours before, but you've been a big part of, uh, of my life for a long time, uh, you know, just in, in a fan sense. I don't want to creep you out, but uh, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity, and I want to thank you on behalf of everyone who I know is out there saying, wow, thank God Artie is man enough to be able to say this because it's really going to make a difference. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks, man. I, that's really nice of you to say, and it makes me feel good that you say that. And I'm I'm really happy that you're back and doing well. You're great at this. The interview's been great. And, uh, you know, listen, I uh, I uh, I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, I'd be happy to come back on at some point, you know. Thank you so much for that. And, hey, next thing, uh, let's just make sure you – let's do something together to get A-Rod out of here, huh? Get his purple lips yeah. and, and just – yeah, it's – He's gonna leave. He's gonna have a great life when he when he leaves baseball. He's gonna be rich enough to have time to have nothing but fun. So let's just get that started soon. <laughs> Thank you so much, Artie. I really appreciate it. All right, but you be well. Good luck. Okay. All right, I want to thank our guests for being on the show today. I always appreciate that. Don't forget you can find our work on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, and you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Keep that email if you're interested in The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling by David Shoemaker or Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football by Richard Cohen. We have copies of those books to give away. All you have to do is email and ask, and if more than one person asks, we'll just put them in a pot and pull one out. So don't be afraid to send a line, tell me which one you want, or if you don't care, just say either, and I'll put you in the drawing for both. And it's a little small gift of appreciation from us. Also, I wanted to mention I often interact with the people, Don. Oh, good. Yeah, on uh, Twitter, those that are nice enough to take the time to... I don't know, ask us a question or make fun of us or correct us or whatever happens. And I wanted to give a shout out to a guy named Kevin Sullivan at Coach Sully on Twitter. 
writes a blog, www.kevinsull.com. Give that a check out for former basketball coach Kevin Sullivan and new listener on the Sportscasters. Thanks for checking us out, Kevin. All right, one last thing from me today. I don't know if seeing Ron Burgundy everywhere (laughs) is making me nervous. It's apparently it's rattling down a little bit. <laughs> I don't know if it's making me nervous about the movie, excited about the movie, a mixture of both. But some of the stuff has been really funny. Some of it's kind of fallen flat. It's kind of everywhere. But the more I've been thinking about it, that's kind of what Ron Burgundy and Anchorman is. There's a million jokes in that first movie. Not all of them are hilarious. No. And also around the last movie, there was a lot of this extra stuff too, but... It wasn't as popular because the movie nobody cared about it yet. Yeah, I, I don't. I know what you're talking about. I saw the curling thing and the news thing. Yeah, he was on the news. There's and, been the commercials, and I wouldn't curling. say that either of them were necessarily laugh out loud hilarious. But I think the idea that he actually sat in and did the entire half hour news broadcast was the most hilarious part right. of the whole. And thing. that he did it in North Dakota, right? Just randomly, yeah. And uh, the curling one I thought was significantly more funny than the newscast. By the way, right? But it was only. Two minutes long or so, right? He only did like he didn't do the whole event. Oh he? no, it's like a thirty minute. You, oh really? Oh yeah. It's oh, really I just long. saw a cut up version then. Oh yeah, it's uh, he's in the booth with them. That's awesome. Talking about curling, it's certainly pretty funny. And then there was the commercials, the which I thought were pretty funny. And uh, they moved the movie up a week, which is I think is a good thing. It's one less week of all this stuff, but I'm still looking forward to it. And I bet it's funny. But I asked someone. What can this movie do to make people happy? Because I think no matter what, people are just going to say, ah, it wasn't good as the first one or whatever. I think the buildup is really going to kill this. So I don't know. Try to go in with as minimal expectations as you possibly can because I think that's just going to kill it, if anything, is the expectations. Yeah, I'm excited for it either way. Um, One last thing, and this is getting local again for me. A lot of my stuff is whining and complaining about my football teams or hockey teams. Uh, I put something on Facebook basically about how being a Bills fan is being teased by the prospects of something really fun and really cool, and then uh, at the last second it just gets taken away from you. So many times this has happened to us lately. Uh, In years past, we've been teased by these quarterbacks like Trent Edwards and Ryan Fitzpatrick, and, oh, maybe we found a guy, even though deep down we should have known that Ryan Fitzpatrick and Trent Edwards aren't prototypical quarterbacks. They're not really intangible quarter they just they didn't do anything spectacularly well but uh edwards took us to like a five and oh start the one year or five and one something f- phenomenal before they fell flat on their face and this is that whole thing we talked about earlier uh there's if you're just bad those seasons are easier to take even at four and seven this past kind of like the win a close game versus win a blowout argument Yes, or lose the lose a blowout. Right, right. Lose yeah. a blowout. Win a, lose lose a blowout. Lose a close game. Argument. Right. right. I'd rather them lose the blowout if they're going to lose. Uh, this year, even at four and seven, the AFC being as bad as it was, and we see flashes of EJ Manuel looking great. The the young kids all look really exciting. Robert Woods, um, Flash Goodwin, uh, Kiko Alonso on defense, especially Kiko. Alonso. Yeah, they've got all these guys that have shown all these flashes. And at four and seven, you think, boy, their schedule is really lined up for them to be eight and seven going into New England. If they get to nine and seven, there's a really good shot that they're going to go to the playoffs. They could have even lost that New England game, gone eight and eight, 
and maybe made the playoffs. Well, I've never gone so quickly from win out to lose out. As soon as that ball was in the air in Atlanta, my thought was, where are we drafting? Like, how how many games can we still lose? And that's a terrible place to be in, but that's what it's like to be a Bills fan. And right now, because the AFC and the league in general is kind of really top-heavy, at 4-8, and eight, the Bills would not pick until ninth. There are eight worse teams than 4-8 Still a top-10 right pick, though. It is a top-10 pick. And they should lose a New England game, but they're going to end up something stupid like seven and nine and yep. pick in the middle. And I know it's a deep draft, but it's a terrible existence. And I know I'm a sucker, but I, all I can keep thinking is next year. The AFC is so weak, and next next year all these rookies will be one year older. And I'm glad it took me till week 12 to abandon the team this year, <laughs> or week 13, 12 games into the season. But I, I want to play a meaningful game in December. I can feel the dawn. I can feel the earth. I can feel the living. 